Welcome to another Sonic Talk, number 316, recording today live on Wednesday, the 5th of June. Goodness me, we're actually in real proper summertime. And finally, I know I've moaned about the weather here before, it's actually happening. It's hot. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm inside. I would love to let the light in, but it just ruins the effect. <laughs> so I'm suffering for your art, or my art, or some kind of art, or maybe no art at all. But I am joined by a guest. Um, I guess everybody else is out to play in this lovely, balmy English weather. It's been such a long time since we've had any sun. They're probably enjoying it uh, themselves. So I want to say hi there to Mr. Rich Hilton uh, from... That's not Rich. What am I doing? I mean, you've got to fade one fader up. Rich Hilton, Hiltonius.com. Of course, Rich has been on the road with uh, disco band Chic, Niall Rogers, who is currently riding high in the media marks at the moment with uh, his collaboration with um, Daft Punk. And Rich has been out on the road with Chic and also working in the studio hard uh, as well because he's also um, the guy who does all the stuff for Niall behind the scenes in the studio too. So a man of many talents. How are you, Rich? I'm good, thank you. Good. Had a really nice time last week seeing you in Bristol. Yes, well, we did get together, didn't we? I mean, that was one thing, because Rich played in Bristol, uh, was it only last week? Gosh, it feels feels like there's about been more day, time. About 10 days ago. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, messy, yeah, a couple of weeks. So, um, and Rich, of course, um, we managed to whisk him away from his uh, luxury hotel and take him to some grubby pubs <laughs> in the country. So we did a pub quiz, which we did well. We- I'd like, I'd, I would like to have ranked. That would have been my up, but, but we did pretty good. We were up against tables of five and six people. That's right. And uh, there was a lot of kind of local national lo- knowledge, which uh, Rich was at a slight disadvantage of uh, because he was on my team. Uh, but or <laughs> any of the US-based stuff, he was absolutely spot on, which, uh, of course, is fantastic. It was fun. We had a great time. I just, ate well drank well it was all good beautiful location excellent sorry i just noticed the recording had stopped recording on the video so uh you'll be joining us again via youtube but we're still just waffling about the introduction so <laughs> rich hilton of course uh, as i'll say again i'll just introduce it again because of uh, the youtube feed uh, of course rich hilton has been on the road with chic the disco band and nile rogers and is uh, the studio guy for nile as well and everything everybody else isn't here today because i think they're out playing in the sun as I said, England has been bereft of such weather for what feels like about 11 or 12 months. <laughs> anyway, um, so Rich, uh, we've got a few topics here. and Hopefully some of these are going to be right up your street, actually. And I was going to start with, um, let me have a look. The, yes, the audio damage mangle verb. If I play that, we can see how that ca- shapes up. So let me hit that. <laughs> This is the latest plugin from Audio Damage, which kind of seems to combine a, a fairly dense reverb, which I like. It reminds me a little bit of the Lexicon LXP kind of stuff, plus a filter, plus an enveloper, plus LFO, plus sort of drive, which Audio Damage stuff, by its very nature, has plenty of drive. And there's some really interesting um, sounds that you can get out of this, a nice combination of ideas. I won't play the whole thing because, um, you know, you can go watch it for yourself. But um, 
Audio damage, I think this is available in AU and VST, so they're just sticking with the two, those two formats, which seems to be kind of quite, a, you know, as we've spoken to about it before, seems to be the way things are going, just because developers... Uh, it's a lot of work on smaller developers to develop for multiple platforms. I know, Rich, have you got any of the audio damage stuff in your arsenal, as it were? I don't, but I did look at this thing with a lot of interest and thought it looked very cool, for, especially for the little amount of money they're asking for it. Yeah, 49 bucks. They do some really, really good uh, plugins. I've been using um, Combinat and Rough Rider Pro uh, for some time. In fact, I was turned on to those by a chap called Robbie Bronneman, who is the guy behind all the Howard Jones current stuff and does a load of other things outside. He's his kind of MD when he takes them out live, you know, the laptop and a couple of Ableton... Uh, uh, with Ableton and a couple of launch pads, that kind of thing. And he's um, rocking it. And they, they are, what they're really, really good for is creating these kind of um, multi band, distorted, filtered compression. So you get this really strong, aggressive sound. It's good for kind of uh, parallel compression. You get these really characterful drum sounds. In fact, I use them a lot. When I was being asked to do, um, there was a project I did a couple of years ago where I had to take a load of loops that were played to the sound of particular records and I put the, I took the multi-tracks and, and, and Rough Rider or Common App was, uh, was one of, you know, was most of the time one of those stages because it's got just so much character. You can really sculpt the sound of it and they're really, really cool. So, uh, and I think I saw Chris Randall in the chat room, the very Chris Randall, the, the foul-mouthed tweeter that he is, <laughs> who is uh, always good for love. If you want to follow him on, uh, on Twitter, it's well worth, um, well worth it. You get some very random but quite interesting sort of, um, how can I put them? They're just sort of outpourings. I'm not sure of the context of them all, but they're generally very entertaining. Uh, are you looking at my finger, Rich? Look, I've got a, I cut my finger. Oh, no. Yeah, food processor. Oh, not as bad wow. as it sounds. Yeah, everybody kind of goes, oh, my God, but it wasn't going at the time. It actually fell, the, the blade fell, my partner was pour, pouring the jug, the blade fell out of the food processor. I instinctively tried to catch something that was falling ah. and it just the blade fell across my finger missed the tendon though so it's all all right it doesn't but it was yeah, yeah it was like as uh, as my daughter was saying to uh, a friend of a friend of her's mother yes there was a lot of effing and jeffing so i did try to keep my uh, keep my foul mouth to to myself but it was pretty difficult with blood pouring everywhere and and uh, yes anyway my daughter did get to have the smoothie after all and I went to the drop-in centre to get some stitches. <laughs> so it all worked out nicely. Uh, blood, probably, yeah, as Native VS says in the chat room, blood is a good food, but I don't think it would have been very good to go with maybe a fruit smoothie. Not so. You know when you, know when you do that, you're supposed to elevate your hand and hold it over your head. Well, I was doing that for a while. I haven't been doing it since then. It happened on Sunday, so I... I no, back when it first yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I rinsed it under the tap because I, I might have seen I did the same thing to my thumb one time when I cut it with a saw, and I just thought, oh, it's fine, and it wasn't fine, and it got infected, and it was really horrible. And uh, so I didn't want that to happen this time, which is why I went to the doctors. This is all kind of fair. But, I mean, finger injuries, you know, you could, as a keyboard player, you can probably relate to how that moment of, oh, my God, I hope that's not serious moment. It's... It's in the category of worst fears for me. Oh, God, I keep putting your lower third wrong. I can't believe it. There's one guest. <laughs> but you are in Connecticut, right? Yes. Uh, no, hey! I'm, not, I'm not living with Tinley, wherever the hell he is. The thing is, is I'm, actually, I'm actually pretty handy. You know, I can do DIY. I used to be a builder. I've done all of these things. I can handle power tools and stuff. It's just the last 
eight months, I've cut myself badly twice. And prior to that, hardly ever. So I don't know, maybe I'm just getting senile or something. I hope not. Anyway, um, so have you, you haven't tried any of the, the, the stuff. Have you got any kind of plug I mean, because this is the thing about this is it's a really quite an unusual plugin. I mean, what do you, you know, I'm guessing in your everyday work, you're probably using sort of fairly standard kind of compression EQ and reverbs and or what have you. Have you got anything that is really unusual that you kind of tend to reach for, for that special something? Sure, I do. Of course I do. Now you're going to want me to tell you what it is. Well, uh, only if it's not uh, a trade secret. Uh, well, first of all, when we get back, I will get to that. But what we get out of this plugin that I think is really interesting is the ability to put reverb pre or post other processing because it makes the reverb sort of a sound source within the plugin for more exotic, sort of decay based rhythmic yeah. things to happen. And I thought that was a very clever thing. The reverb itself sounded pretty good, but what they were able to, I watched their uh, YouTube video from their website and it was really impressive the range of things this could be wrangled into doing so in the filter world you know like it's to me it's mostly a filter with a reverb processor in it um but i thought it was really really versatile and like i said for the money it seemed to work well and sound good as for my own stuff Usually, if I'm filtering, I'm using uh, Filter Freak by Sound Toys. Uh huh. And I will quite often automate parameters in that to do the kinds of pop filtering, you know, resonant filtering sweeps and stuff that people do these days a lot. That said, uh, what else do I use for that? I use uh, McDSP's Futz Box quite a bit to uh, band limit things and make them odd sounding. Uh huh. I quite like that plugin quite a bit, and there's a ton of stuff you can do with it. And they've got models of everything from, you know, the backseat of your car to a, you know. Oh, is it like a convolution type thing? It is. Ah, okay. But it has also algorithmically run distortions and gating and all kinds of other things you can do with it. It's a really fascinating plugin. I really like it a lot. So in the world of what this thing does for those kinds of effects, those are the things I'm most likely to use, though I don't often throw a reverb in front of the filter unless I'm filtering a master bus. Okay. And if I'm doing that, lately I've been using the finger in uh, Native Instruments world. Ah, okay. uh, uh, Somewhat. And I will occasionally use Stutter Edit by Isotope. And if I need to, I'll put a filter freak uh, on the master bus if I want to do one of those kinds of uh, sweepy or envelopey. All right, things. I got you. That sounds interesting. Uh, I, you mentioned Isotope there, and I was very amiss of me not to mention that they obviously sponsor the show, and uh, there will be details of last week's winner of Iris, and also the possibility of winning uh, yet another copy of Iris this week. But I'll tell you a bit more about that later. Um, back to the. Uh, Audio damage stuff. If I just bring up the page, you can see all the other kind of stuff they've got here. They've recently redesigned a lot of the... Well, I, I say recently. Recently to me, I'm still using the older versions of these. Uh, but these, th- there's a whole bunch of really interesting... Um, and they, they've got a nice look to them. They remind me of that... Um, remember that TC Electronics stuff that was very clean interfaces? It's got that sort of vibe to it. I really like the, the way they look now. Uh-huh. But the one thing I was wondering whether it's possible to drive the reverb, because I was listening back to some mixes that I did, and I was doing some stuff with where, where I took a MIDI verb too, and I'd, pi- I'd just drive the signal really hard into it, and you get this really uh, 
just great blown up kind of sound. And I couldn't see from that demo whether there's a way to, because you can filter, you could drive the reverb afterwards, but then if you put the reverb post, it's post everything. So you can't actually overload the input reverb. Unless if Chris Randall is still in the chat room, he might be able to uh, actually tell me that that is or is not possible. If it's not, maybe a revision. Back four, it looked to me like it should have been. Like, you could definitely route the output back to the input. So in that way, you could overdrive it on a second pass. Um, ah, but okay. I'm no expert on this device. But but uh, uh, there were a number of feedback paths. Uh, okay. I'll have to check that. Um, unfortunately, he's left. He was just in here for a moment, <laughs> and he's gone. Maybe it was something. It was our scintillating analysis. Maybe it's something I said. I'm sure he's busy doing stuff. Maybe he heard what I said and is just going to make it so if it wasn't. But I think, as you say, Rich, it may well be possibly so. But yeah, um, jolly good stuff. Uh, if you want to go and check that out, audiodamage.com, and it's the latest thing. And again, it's. 49 bucks i mean it's a it's a good deal and that's the thing i like about plugins rather than you know i mean we i know you use universal audio stuff and you know we for the precision um uh, component model stuff you know there's 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 some great things out there and things that do this sort of standard things but what i'm interested in is those really weird things that you can't do anywhere else things like uh, dynamic eqs and things like that they're sort of very interesting i've been recently reading about as well where you can take so you can take an EQ, you know, take the bass drum and maybe every time it triggers one frequency, up the other bit. So it, you can use it on a mastering sort of scenario where you're actually increasing dynamically certain frequency areas of the of the mix. Things like that. I and mean, these are the things that, that we can do in software much more easily, I guess, than, um, than creating dedicated hardware. Um, but yeah. Okay, and thanks very much for your tips there. Um, so that's Mangle Verb. Uh, and the next thing is, uh, I hope you're going to find this because I, I've, I've poo-pooed it for before but on second listen i found it more interesting i wonder what it's going to be this is uh the hartman neuron this is a very rare beast and it looks absolutely lovely and i kind of want one just because I like the look of it. I think at the time I wasn't so keen, but now I'm just thinking, oh, and some of the sounds you can get out of it just sound really, really quite unique. Whereas before, I think a lot of the stuff I did here was just sort of like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I think there's another one that I got here. Yeah, this one was good. This is a sort of jam. This, this, and this is, uh, that, that first one was from um, Taylor 12K. Uh, and this, this, is from Smarty1970 on YouTube. Uh, and this is obviously, a, I think, a jam that he had when he had one under his, uh, in his possession. And you can hear much more of the granular stuff. I think the thing about the, the Hartman Neuron, I think I've got a... Because uh, they've... The reason this has came up, basically, is because uh, the they've made a VST version available again. And it's a free download. Um... And I was thinking, oh, that sounds like I'd quite like to to check that out. So I thought I'd sort of take a listen to some of the sounds of it. Unfortunately, you need you can't use a VST host over two point four. So with current systems, it might be an issue. So you maybe want to take a look at uh, an article that was written for us about making a hackintosh, where you can <laughs> create lower version, multi boot other operating systems. But that's neither here nor there. You also to get the most of it, you're going to need. Uh, I forget what it's called. Do you remember what the, the actual heart um, neuron um, 
it's like a little box. I'm trying to, I should have it here. It's like they made a USB sort of dongle which had one of those joysticks on it. And so, you know, to get the most of it, you need one of those. The Nuke, that's right. Thank you, Chatroom. Chatroom, once again, to the rescue, uh, the Turbo Brain. Um, I know, did you ever get your hands on one of these? Because they're as rare as Rockin' Horse Doo-Doo, I think. No, never did. Never have seen one. The idea, I mean, the reason I brought this up, apart from the fact that it's good to know this is available and you can get hold of it, is is really, you know, it, it is a very unique synthesizer model. It has uh, sort of resonators and you load sample data into them and they they become spectral analyzed and then they're resynthesized. So if, and you can create these kind of granular based oscillators that you can micro tweak with all of those kind of wonderful um, front panel controls. And I think at the time it was probably a little bit too far out um, and it was five grand. It was a very expensive thing in terms of dollars. Cause, uh, uh, but I remember at the time, I think it was about two or 3,000 euros, which because uh, the exchange rate was very different then. And uh, it was one of the first, here's a new synth, it's going to be over two grand. Because I remember at the time it was sort of quite shocking. But now that seems to be the norm for kind of boutique stuff. Um, and it was really more about the, what, you know, this sounds like a new synthesis method that never really took hold in a kind of, not mass-produced, but in a, 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 a kind of less scientific way of doing it. Have you seen anything from a synthesis point of view that is up and coming and where we're kind of, where we might be able to go with synthesis? Because we're very much in the kind of modular, analog, standard, you know, modelling of 30, 40, 50-year-old technology. So I'm just kind of wondering if you've seen anything that might be considered, you know, kind of quite groundbreaking or, or areas of synthesis that you'd like to see explored in a more user interface friendly fashion. Well, I think the most groundbreaking thing I've seen in some time, coincidentally enough, is isotope iris. That's true. Um, nice link. Because you can take kind of like what these guys did where you were resynthesizing stuff and then taking bits out of what you resynthesized and combining it with bits out of other things and having kind of odd oscillator sounds available to you. And interestingly, the Imp2 also does that to some extent and gives you the opportunity to use things as oscillators. But this thing does seem really, really unique sounding to me. In the demos I listened to, I was really quite enthralled and I ended up downloading the thing, although I haven't used it yet. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Yeah, because uh, um, even though you don't, if you don't have Nuke, you can still browse the presets. You just can't do the kind of funky joystick stuff. Right. I, I don't, is it completely parameter um, disabled without the hardware? And is, is there no parameter that can be tweaked? I am not clear on that. I'll have to pass. Okay. I did download it, and then I started downloading a 1.6 gigabyte um, data file, which is presumably lots of whale waves and the sample data. But yesterday, uh, I don't know if that we had some really weird internet stuff going on. In fact, my mobile phone carrier dropped data for the entire day. It was just unavailable, and the, the, the internet here was up and down all over the place. It was really flaky, so I'm guessing there's some great big um, technical issue somewhere. Some guy, you know sitting in the sun, lean back and flip the big switch that screwed it all up. You know, I don't know kind of what happened there. Um, but yeah, it was quite... I, I Actually, oh, Native VS says in the chat room, you can tweak anything but the joystick controls. Okay, good. So, I, yeah, I'd like, I'll spend a little time playing with this thing. It sounds to me like some kind of additive meets frequency modulated 
almost prophet vs next generation sounding thing to me. But I don't know if that's fair or if it's just based on the few samples of the audio that I heard. I haven't operated it, in other words, but it looks cool and it sounded cool. Yeah, I remember seeing it at Mesa many, many years ago, uh, and then the Nuke. Uh, the Nuke always reminded me of one of those. Um, oh, I think it was Bunwell who did those. Uh, or, or one of the one of the um, surrealist artists, uh, and it looked like um, that picture that there's of, of surreal art, which is of a of a coin operated parking meter. <laughs> which you may well have seen somewhere. And uh, that's what it reminded me of. I, and that's a fairly random piece of visual um, reference. Well, this is going to seem really cynical, but the, the way that whole thing shakes out with the software being free and them telling you you can't really operate it properly without this little piece of hardware makes me wonder if they have a warehouse somewhere full of these pieces of hardware and they figured out a way to get rid of them. Uh, well, that, I remember they were blowing them out really, really cheap at uh, at the end of end of life for that. I mean, they were kind of down to uh, like hundred quid. You know, I remember seeing them. They were they were being okay. advertised everywhere. So I'm pretty sure they must have blown a lot of them out because at that time, software was still. Oh, I, I can't. I don't recall actually the details, but I remember seeing it, and I, I'm sure they wouldn't have made tens of thousands of them. I mean, nobody makes kind of stuff like that in those. Well, they're giving away the software. Yeah, I think, uh, if I recall, I saw it go past while I was trying to um, get some guests on the show to accompany us, that uh, Chris Randall was involved somehow in keeping this alive. I don't know if the chat room can uh, perhaps, um, um, you know, uh, clarify that, because they've been here probably paying attention <laughs> more than I have. Um, but we, sh- we shall see. Um, the only other thing that somebody mentioned in the chat room earlier, actually, the other synthesis, the Wolfgang Palm apps. I don't know if you tried any of those. The Wave, um, oh, the, the Wave stuff. It's based on PPG Wave technology, but he's done these fantastic, uh, I should know because Gaz has brought them forward for the last Sonic Touch. Uh, the, uh, they are really interesting where you just grab things and s- drop slots. Uh, it's a, and it's a very deep and interesting sounding synthesis engine. It's very hardcore. When you get behind the scenes, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, but some very interesting stuff indeed. And I've always felt that um, there should be more going on um, as an interface to FM synthesis because I think that is a f- largely unexplored, on a mass scale um type of synthesis and it's capable of some great stuff i mean lots of synthesis synthesizers are capable of it but none, not many of them in terms of large scale num, large numbers of operators obviously you've got um the native instrument stuff which i mean as far as i can tell is essentially a preset browser for those millions of dx presets that exist floating about the place that i used to hoard and collect like a bit of an obsessive kid i was at the time atari floppy disks full of them <laughs> i don't know if you're the yep. same you still got yours rich <laughs> I probably do on some old computer, but yeah, it was all about having a good librarian program and copying people's sounds and all that. Everybody was trading banks of sounds and buying banks of sounds. And it was, yeah, yeah. it's interesting actually because um, there's a, an article that was just posted today by uh, Greg Cole, who's one of our um, newfound bloggers who we're, we're, we're recruiting to kind of just give us some more editorial input. It's worked out really well, and it's about the rise and fall and rise again of analog. And that whole transition, because when the DX7 came along, it was the currency was presets rather than tweakability, wasn't it? And it changed the whole dynamic and the whole way. And we're still, to many uh, degrees, kind of suffering from this kind of the, the, the long tail of that um, initial effect, because we kind of became patch junkies, many of us. 
Uh, because some of these synthesizers are so complicated, you don't really have time to kind of program a bass sound from scratch when you're in the, in the middle of a session or whatever. So, interesting stuff. Uh, okay. So, uh, I'd probably say uh, this, this might be time to say a word from our sponsors, and after which I will announce the winner of the competition, and we can all uh, uh, find out what the next competition is. So, if I press the add button... We'll see that Isotope's uh, trailer comes up. This is obviously Iris. Iris is, you know, as we know, it's a very unique synthesis engine. Works on sampling and frequency analysis and intuitive visual selection. It's kind of like Photoshop for audio with a synthesizer in the same way that their uh, RX technology is used for noise reduction and isolating stuff. With this, you can kind of grab various bands and magic wands, lots of kind of visual references. Uh, you can have up to four samples. There's uh, warm, lush filters, delayed reverb, chorus and effects for each layer. You've got send effects and insert effects. Lots of sound libraries as well. You can obviously bring your own sounds in, but uh, there are uh, sound libraries of wood, glass, food, toys, altered and prepared objects, as well as crazy modular synthesizers uh, with the iris expansion packs uh, you can download a free demo of this and this is the thing download a free demo 10 day fully operational isotope.com forward slash iris so go to it uh, it really is quite a unique way of exploring i know lots of our regular listeners who've been following the campaign have been sort of saying oh i've downloaded it. you know i've been noticing there's been more people talking about it so hopefully you know we're helping spread the word uh, and uh, that's all good speaking of which uh, we do have a winner i mean if you remember last week's competition um it wasn't very Irish. Well, it was in no way related to Iris whatsoever, um, which um, was perhaps um, not so intuitive. But the idea was that you could uh, just give us some ideas of fictional 80s bands. And there were some very good ones, actually. Uh, I-, I won't go through them all. I mean, because we did talk about them on a previous topic, uh, which is what gave me the idea. But I think the winner is a guy called Alan Arez67. And he uh, posted Bon Jehovah, which is a French AOR rock covers band, which I thought was particularly amusing. Um, and there were, there was, but there were tons and tons and tons of them. Um, you can just check the comments in last week's podcast, either uh, on the show, uh, in the show page on Sonic State, or you can do it uh, on YouTube, where we got tons and tons, probably the most comments I think we've ever had from the show, for one of the podcast shows. So uh, congratulations. I will be contacting you and Ira, the the isotope um goody fairy will be bestowing you with uh, a accredited account and you can have that and so uh congratulations once again and of course this week well, we have one more giveaway to do and um this is this comes from isotope which does have a little bit more of a, an iris kind of slant and that is tell us the weirdest thing you've ever sampled and uh if you put that in the comments then we can have a look at that and uh, the winner will be picked uh, through no real criteria, it might be funny, it might be uh, whatever reason. Just tell us what it is, it could be any reason, and we'll pick that, and the winner will be announced next week. So once again, we do thank Iris uh, and Isotope for their sponsorship of the show. Once again, download your free 10-day tr- trial if you're looking for inspiration. Maybe you want to sample something weird and then put it in here and tell us about it. Isotope.com forward slash Iris. Right. Uh, next up, yeah, Hartman Neuron, um, and, ah, now I think you're going to enjoy this. This is the, uh, I, I'm going to have to be very careful how I play this, because obviously it's massively copyrighted material, so if I talk over it, this is, uh, via, uh, the unofficial Beatles channel called the Beatle Mirko. I'm not quite sure where it gets the name, but this is, uh, footage of John Paul, uh, and Ringo and the gang, and plus, um, the producer, what's his name? They keep calling him Al in the video. So that's why I was confused. George Martin, of course. 
this is them in the studio. Apparently, in the 60s, they... Um, 968, they recorded 25 takes of this. And this, uh, presumably the original song was then cut together or chosen and built upon elsewhere. The reason they re- they recorded this actually in... Uh, where was it? It was at Trident, because they could record eight tracks. So they could do the eight track recordings there, then they went back to Abbey Road to kind of finish it off. But there's just some great stuff in there, some real insights. And it, what I, I'll cut it because we will get busted for it. And I know, Rich, you're a massive fan of... Uh, the Beatles and the, uh, kind of knowing the history of the recording process and what have you. Wasn't that fantastic? I've never seen it anywhere else, that. I mean, I'm guessing it must have been a TV special or something, right? Oh, you've gone silent. You're still silent. Hi. Ah, yes. excellent. Thank you. I, was, I shut it off at the commercial. Uh, it was great, and I'd never seen it before, and I really enjoyed it, and I did wonder where it was shot because it was clearly not Abbey Road... Two, and I didn't think Abbey Road 3 had ever looked like that, but I wasn't in it back then when they first built it. And I don't know if it was built in time for Hey Jude. Um, but uh, it was big fun. It was fun to see that. It's, you know, for a completist like me and a Beatles fan, it's always fun to see them mucking about with songs that later became great and familiar to you. And uh, I quite enjoyed it in this case. I think the thing... It was yeah, sorry. interesting, possibly, that Harrison was sitting in the control room with George Martin, it seemed, for the basic track. Yeah, didn't George Martin look bored? <laughs> it's like, well, I guess 25 takes is quite a lot. You know, and if they've been... I guess he's probably used to people doing what he says, and they're probably, at that point, you know, just larking about and enjoying the, 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 their time in the studio, which it looks like. So, you know, they've become, I guess, back perhaps a lot in, in a lot of instances George Martin would have been the big shot you know he would have been the guy the most important guy in the studio and the most well known whereas the bands you know working with somebody like the Beatles where they have obviously that long history that dynamic would have changed somewhat so uh, it's interesting to see that I mean there's an enormous amount of stuff you could read out of that uh, the thing that I found really interesting was this whole idea of the dynamic of recording in that method so you know, you could tell like Paul was was screwing up certain takes and messing around and, and doing vocal acrobatics and just experimenting all the time, all at the same time as recording a take of the song, and that whole idea, that that way of working. Presumably, they would have what edited or spliced. You know, if they go right, that's the way to do it, or maybe they would have gone back and visited and, and listened. To that. I don't know how that necessarily worked. You probably read more on the subject than I have. Um, or, so, do you know how that worked? Because that was something that was fascinating to me. Well, I don't know specific to their process, except I think just as you've observed that they were willing to do that along the way to developing the song's ideas, uh, that playing with it was, was fun for them. And even in the get back slash let it be sessions, you see them having fun playing around with things, either songs for the album or songs they hadn't played in a long time or whatever, that they seem completely un encumbered by the notion that they're burning studio time <laughs> yeah there is that that and that must be quite because i mean when they would have started that sort of you'd have like a second you know it's like right you get one take that's it you better get it right because time those their recording studios were so fantastically esoteric and expensive to run i guess you know the equipment must have cost relatively speaking an enormous amount of money well and also if i understand what i've read about the period 
by a certain point, they became convinced that they were being in some ways creatively restricted by the old school methods that were taking place at EMI Studios. Um, Jeff Emmerich writes about having to break rules and keep the doors shut in order to put a microphone a certain distance from a kick drum because the engineering staff would go nuts. And the Beatles had broken their session hour rule by saying, well, we're going to start at this time and we'll finish when we're done. And I guess nobody had ever done that before. Ooh, do you think, they, do the think they were the first people, the, the first guys who started the lockout notion? Because <laughs> they would have just... That's kind of what... Emmerich implies in his book, but I can't say for sure that he said that specifically. The first guy. I, I don't know if they were the first, but um, I suppose that when the Beatles, well, you know what? They were still sharing the rooms. They weren't buying lockouts. They were buying eight-hour sessions up till that point where they said, you know what? We're going to work until we're done. Hmm. And I don't know if it was done on a lockout rate or an hourly rate, or I don't know what EMI did about all of that. You can imagine that the, administ the administrators would have gone crazy. It's like, it can't be done. The paper says Well, no. and just providing staff yeah. would have been tricky because everybody is used to working in a certain schedule at a certain time. It's very much, you know, like a hospital in there back then, at least as the way it looks in the and the way it reads. That's an interesting idea. And whereas now... It's very much, very much the opposite. There, there is sort of, I mean, rarely is there pressure on a recording session. I mean, unless you're, if you're rehearsing and you book the room between X and Y and you may be doing some stuff there, then there's, there's some immediacy, but you're performing a different process. Now, you know, a lot of times lock in, you know, that when you go to a studio, there's an assumption that it's going to be a late one. I mean, um, I'm thinking for maybe bands going, be. yeah. It, it, you have to be prepared for it as a studio owner. Yeah. That if a, a client books from 8 o'clock and says, well, I'll probably be done around midnight, but I might run longer, you've got to be ready for I'm going to run longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, when we were doing uh, an album, we were in a commercial studio. Uh, we were booked in uh, the Wool Hall, which was a, a studio that's no longer in existence. It used to be Tears for Fears place. Then it became Van Morrison's place. And then I, now I think it's just turned into a and b somewhere. It's just outside of Bath. I remember <laughs> driving back at 3, 4 in the morning, going to bed for a few hours, and then driving back in again and just being completely sort of wiped out. And I just, you know, it, it, I'm not sure quite what we were thinking about working that way. Because a lot of the time, I suppose a lot of the time what you're doing is... I would have to be there because we were effectively unraveling my multi-tracks and the MIDI sessions and everything and then striping them to tape and what have you. And then, you know, the, the engineer would then spend his time getting a mix together and we'd sit and we'd go and have supper and then come back in and kind of go, yeah, tweet. You know, it's all of that kind of stuff. And that's real. And he was residential there. So, yeah, I mean, but I just remember being really, really tired. I'm glad I wasn't actually engineering or having to do much creative programming at that time because that was just tough. I certainly saw sunrises at the end of long studio nights many times yeah, yeah. at some point in my life. These days, I don't really have the... Well, you don't need... I, I mean, not. that's... I prefer not to. I think the thing <laughs> is also, there's an element of uh, when you're working with perhaps younger artists who are not so creatively assured, you know, they don't, they don't have so much faith in their own ability to come up with the goods consistently. There's this sort of notion sometimes that you think, well, you know... We have to keep going while it's happening, otherwise we might not ever get it again, and it's this sort of magic moment that might happen. In fact, you know, that's not necessarily always the case. You've just got to know when that is going to arrive and make sure you're ready for it in a recording scenario rather than perhaps a mixing one. 
I guess. Well, we were recently worked with a young producer who I shall remain nameless. And uh, he does all of his work in a laptop. And when we left, he was quite prepared to sit there until he was done doing more production stuff and listening to it in a big control room in a studio. That's what, that's his, his workflow, his MO. And uh, we were pretty much done at whatever, 10, 11 at night. We're getting tired. We've had a full day and everything else. And he's a young man and he wants to keep working. And so, you know, we'll see you tomorrow morning kind of thing. Right. It's an interesting idea. I mean, and also because you can, whereas, you know, I remember, you know, um, this is going to sound dated and a bit old foginess, but you know, when you, sometimes when you book a lock-in or when you're doing a mix session, you'd also book like a programming room. So there'd be stuff going on alongside the mix. So, you know, while that's happening, there'd be, uh, you know, somebody prepping and, and just finalizing some of the parts for the mix of the next track or just going, you know, the, I mean, obviously you do a lot of prep before you get there, but there's still often. And also when you're working with a band who is in the middle of, working their uh, their creative output you know they've got albums out they've got promo they're having to do versions of things and what have you you're still working on maybe new material that you're going to try and tag along at the end of the mix session or recording you know there's often you get that scenario where there's more than one thing happening at once in, in a separate room if you've got that ab- ability well the most recent experience of mine like that was where during the basic track sessions i was not just in another room i was across the st- <laughs> across the street in another studio um taking the completed basic sessions and organizing them into things that you could then subsequently do overdubs on. And while I was doing that there, they were recording more basics across the street. And so there was sort of an assembly line kind of way of getting that part of it done. And then the sessions would go back to them and they would complete them in that role because I was not the main engineer on that project. There was some famous guy who was. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because I I recall... That the programming rooms that were coming up in ancillary to the main rooms would be like a room full of synthesizers and drum machines and stuff, you know, and there, or a computer. So there would be, this was maybe, you know, uh, mid to late. 80s to early 90s that's the way that studios would kind of would be built whereas now it's sort of almost the big room is the ancillary one and you've got lots of little programming rooms it's kind of flipped on its head somewhat oh for for at least a decade or more in pretty much every studio major studio i go to the little rooms keep the lights on in the big room yeah and that's true and that's true at abbey road by the way we were just talking about the beatles when I went to Abbey Road to visit a little over 10 years ago, they had 100 employees wow. on staff. They had a, hallways and hallways upstairs of production rooms that were populated all the time with people who were actually making the money for the place. Writing the songs, doing the ads, doing the jingles, that kind of thing, I suppose. Whatever, movie scores and what, what have you, but anything you don't need a big room to do, which these days isn't that many things. I mean, they do a lot of orchestra work, particularly in Studio One, but and they probably do a lot of band work where you have some live basics working. But for, I think the bread and butter of the whole studio world these days is the little rooms keeping the lights on in the big rooms. Yeah, I know you're right, I, I, and it's uh, it's kind of like the serviced office idea. I mean, when we before we moved into this place, you know, we were in a, a building that was a number of ind- little units it wasn't music related but you know so you have a central administrational area and all the little rooms have you know are provided with network and power and heating and all of those things and you just kind of use your room and those ideas are 
that that's how kind of larger studio complexes work now. I mean, you know, you, you look at uh, tours of various studios and, you know, Studio 2 is now, you know, they often say, oh, that's where John Bon Jovi writes his stuff now. Do you know what I mean? There's usually like a producer that's just resident in there and he brings projects in and that's, that seems to be the way it goes. It's interesting. Well, they do count on the, uh, the regular return client business who want to take a room for some period of time. Yeah. On a lockout basis. Well, geez, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, we're the same. I, I'd much rather sell a year's worth of advertising than a week. <laughs> so, yeah, same kind of deal. Well, I don't know if it's a year, but, for example, when I met Mark Tinley, we were working together at Sphere Studios in Battersea. And uh, clearly, those guys had spent a bunch of time there in the past, and they were quite comfortable there, and the studio was happy to have them as clients and worked very hard to make sure that they were well-serviced and well-accommodated. And we would even occasionally move that project from room to room in there, and it was quite easy for them. Right. Yeah, I guess if you're in a familiar environment and people are used to accommodating what you need, then, you know, why would you want to move? I mean, it makes perfect sense. And if they can afford it. Well, yeah, there is that too. I mean, uh, while it's lovely, while it's lovely to have all of that food on tap, and you know, I mean, when what I would love it whenever we were working, uh, Golfrap was working on um, either production rehearsals or tracking, production rehearsals mainly. We'd be over in the rehearsal spaces in real world, but the best, you know, the best bit is you go and have your dinner and your lunch in a fantastically equipped kitchen and with just excellent food. In fact, you know, every time I get the opportunity to go to real world, it's like, yeah, can I stay for lunch? Because <laughs> it's always great food, you know, and that's part of the, the allure of that closed environment that you kind of, you don't get so much. Well, it's, um, and it also descends from the history of the resort studio, which began in the 70s, yeah. where you would go to some Nassau. exotic place where there was nothing else to do but enjoy the local sunshine and record. And some of them were in the islands, like Montserrat. Some of them were in the woods, like Caribou. And, they, and there was one in uh, Massachusetts, um, the name of which escapes me, but it was some farm in Western Mass. And people tried to, and there was one on Long Island called Boogie Hotel that was owned by Foghat and some other people at some point. And it, they tried to float that. You know, we have a kitchen, you can stay upstairs, you can stay here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if you're in the thick of it, you know, there's no point in, uh, yeah, but I need to go out. You know, you, don't, you shouldn't be going out and partying and stuff because it's just massively distracting. But this all predates the time where most people have their own gear and yeah. the studio business changed drastically when it went from a model where they had the gear and you didn't so you had to go to them yeah and everybody had the gear and then why would you go to them well they would either have to sell you services or expertise or some combination of the above because once everybody got their own gear they all decided they were engineers everybody with a mic preamp and a microphone became an engineer like instantly <laughs> true enough as cynical as that sounds, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, well, it kind of and is. And it began, that, that actually began with Porta Studios. John Van Eaton says in the chat room that uh, he stayed at Compass Point for a month. Wow, that sounds good. Compass Point was the one in the Bahamas. That's where, uh, was that, that was Island's studio, wasn't it? That was where a lot of the Grace Jones stuff was done and all those kind of classic tracks. And a lot of things were done down didn't there. Didn't Duran do some stuff at Compass Point? I think they did in the back yeah, in the no day, way. yeah. Because it was the, and and it's funny. I think I, I forget which episode. I mean, several years ago, we talked about the kind of the classic residential studio, and the Compass Point was one of them. And there was a photo tour of it, and it didn't look quite so glamorous these days. But it's still, I think, it's still going. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, but maybe it's just uh, a beach <laughs> and so, and a roof and some some power that works. So, but yeah, 
kind of great stuff. Well, um, that probably takes us nicely into this next uh, topic, which is uh, something that I found um, on YouTube. Uh, let me see. It's tube tests. So see if I can bring this up. This is just an interesting idea. This is from the company. Uh, they're called... Welcome to another episode of Tube Test. This is an exciting episode. We're actually going to hit the road, go to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and check out the Mike Museum. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty cool. 62 years. So this is basically uh, Bob Parkett. Uh, the the, the podcast is called The Tube Test Show. It's actually really good. There's some great loads of videos they've got of them testing out mics. They've got a, a guy singer and a girl singer. I think they're married. And they, they do some really good comparative mic tests. And it's really worth looking at. I'm surprised at how low the 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 count is on some of their episodes. So, yeah, do check them out. Um, they're very interesting stuff. Uh, but this was just a brilliant... I don't know if you got a chance to see this. This is just like this amazing catalogue of, of vintage microphones that this guy, Bob Parkett, has put together uh, over 62 years of collecting. And it goes right back from uh, the original sort of soundstage mics, which look you kind of suspend over the soundstage with a rope to... And there, there's a brilliant piece, and he shows it. And, and to all... And just, I, I don't know, I kind of find this quite interesting. I don't know how you feel about microphones, whether you feel kind of in the same way, but uh, yeah... Rich, have you been to it? In fact, no, I have not. I would love to go there, and unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to watch this video in my preparation. I did take note of it, but I just ran out of time before the show and I didn't get to watch it. I do want to watch it and I do want to go visit this place. I am fascinated by transduction technologies and microphones and speakers and things that convert one form of energy to another. I'm just enthralled by it. Ah, here's the. This is the mic. Actually, this is uh, if I, I can scroll it back. This is what it. Yeah, this guy. This is the thing that would be uh, held over the uh, suspended, oh. and it still works. Gosh. And it's like 1920s or something. The input just, stage was so critical. It's amazing. They had to make special resistors for that, and they were made out of xylene and alcohol. Just, I can't imagine the kind of toxic substances that are going on in that Here kind of again, belt. I demonstrate this a lot. <laughs> this is a C battery, which you can't get, and this one came with the unit so i didn't want to part with it so oh, that's I great. Free... I mean, he sounds like a really interesting guy and you know if you're into mics obviously if you're not it's probably going to bore the teeth off you but you know uh, well worth checking out in fact he has a website uh it's the ss i'll put it up here but it does seem to put his phone number which i'm not so sure is a good idea but uh let's see if i can press that button there yeah this is the bob paquette microphone museum uh and the pictures there's just a ton of pictures and there's some great just he's got 1200 microphones there and they're just uh, he's got a whole uh, german section american section and a uh, us section so he's got plenty of stuff to uh, to keep you entertained and it sounds like he likes to talk about it as well but do check out the tube test podcast as well it's a good one it's uh, there's there's just some that the last one they were looking at they were looking at these flea uh, the flea microphones, which I think come out of Slovenia, and they're rebuilds of Neumann 87s and 47s, and they sounded really, really nice. I mean, they're expensive. They're like three grand mics, but yeah. Do you, I mean, do you, speaking of microphones, just as a sort of general aside, is is there, do you think the quality has improved enough to sort of beat, you know, the classics? Because, I mean, the, U, the U47 has a sound that is very, very familiar to many ears, isn't it? It's that sort of the sound of Abbey Road, the sound of kind of a lot of classic recordings. I mean, are there, you know, if you can get one, is that the one you'd use or would you use something else yourself? You mean budget considerations? I suppose, yeah, I suppose, yeah. I, get, I think 
some people are making really, really good microphones right now. And the example I can cite from personal experience is up the road about an hour from here at Telefunken USA, where our vintage U48 serial number 95 was uh, serviced, cleaned up, given a new tube. They tested like a whole bunch of tubes in the thing. And then they did a frequency sweep on it and compared it to one of their current production models of same. Wow. And it was unbelievably close. Wow. Unbelievably close. Theirs had like a dB more at 7K, and that was about it. It was really so unbelievably close. Is that, I mean, I mean, I'm guessing that that's partly because uh, manufacturing techniques for sort of macro engineering tolerances has got cheaper. I mean, that must be the case because we've got computer control stuff and CAD and all of those kind of things. And you can create more components that are fit within the, com- the tolerances. I guess back then you'd probably have to throw away half of it because it wouldn't fit within the, t- within the tolerances. My understanding is that they're at least, they're making these things by hand. Wow. Soup to nuts. Wow. They're sputtering capsules and such up there. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. That is. And, so, and I'm telling you, I was so impressed by the quality of the product that they were showing me that I bought some of it. I didn't buy a, a U48. I did buy a small diaphragm tube condenser microphone that's wonderful. Is that like the KM, like the Neumann KM range, those little this KMs? Was, yeah, but this was, I believe it's called M260, but I could be wrong. Right. It's the Telefunken microphone. Ah, okay. um, Synth Beast in the chat room says uh, the MXL nine ninety sounds quite good for a budget mic. That mic that you use, Rich, also sounds pretty good. I don't know if it's budget. But this one here, yeah, that's the uh, uh, is that a CAD? This is a CAD Equitech E two hundred from like twenty years ago. Yeah, is what this is. And I think there's definitely you know you there there's certain mic you know whether it's like those things that it, as um that there I was watching the review that they did of the flea mic and it's quite interesting the guy basically just sort of says it's funny you know you see these things you just put one up and you hear it and you just go oh that sounds so familiar it's like when you use a pultech for the first time and you hear it in the flesh you go oh so that's you know there are certain things that just have a very strong signature uh, and while it's not always encouraged in microphones, uh, certainly these days with digital recording, you know, the, the idea is you shape it afterwards in many cases. I mean, that's not always the way. Well, transduction is a more colorful process than digital recording is. And that's why in our digital recorders now, we have to work so hard to give mojo to things that used to have mojo on the way in. Right. Um, and as far as this mic goes, um, it was funny because I remember one week uh, friends of mine – from a microphone company had sent me a microphone and I put it up here and every right away the chat room was like, what happened to your voice? Yeah, there's a sort of signature sound, isn't there? I mean, I, I, I used a, a condenser for quite a long time and then, uh, I can't remember what I used. I think I, I borrowed a couple. Uh, I think I used the Behringer um, that we had just because it was lying around and this just felt like the right sort of noise. I, I think because I, I got a bunch of Rode mics and I tested them. And this was the one that I felt, you know, was the best sound. Well, plus I can use it as a bass drum mic if I need to. Well, that sounds that sounds good on you. And large diaphragm dynamics are like, you know, the historic as broadcast mics because they are so warm. Yeah, absolutely. And they emphasize that, you know, deeper vocal range. This, of course, is a large diaphragm condenser, and I'm not I'm not all that close to it right now. You know, like I don't get up on it too much for these things. 
Yeah. Uh, well, the other, as uh, um, Mechanic says in the studio, in the chat room as well. Uh, let me just bring that up. We'll give the chat room a bit of love because. Uh, as we know, we very much appreciate them being here. Uh, Mechanic says, uh, I love Ribbon U. Yeah, the uh, SE Electronics Voodoo VR1. We use that on all our stuff. I mean, that is so... It just sounds like what it does. You know, you, it, oh yeah, that's what it sounded like in the room. It's a very... Uh, uh, that's the thing that, that's good for us for listening tests and for, for consistency between things. You know, that definitely... If ever I'm testing a mic pre or anything, I always use the ribbon mic because that gives me a much... Feels like a much flatter sound. So I do like that. And that's, that's technology that's come on a long way, hasn't it? Ribbons, because they used to be so difficult to drive and noise levels and all that kind of thing. And now, you know, there's many more of those. Do you use any ribbons in the studio yourself, Rich? I'm not sure if I asked you this before. Yes. Yes, we have a Royer 122, which I got in the last few years, and it's wonderful. What do you use that for, generally? Well, it's definitely my first call for the horn work we do in there, right. along with the uh, Real Traps portable vocal booth right behind it, because the horns tend to light up that room like crazy, yeah, I and imagine. I don't need that much, that much room in the horn recordings. Um, and, that, and because it's a figure of eight microphone, thing, yeah. I really feel like I need to choke off the back side of the thing with whatever I can, you yeah. know, without taping over it. I need to, you know, limit what's coming in the back of the microphone. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, the Royer 122, which is like a 121, except it accepts phantom powering. So it's got a higher output, presumably. It's got a hot output and it sounds clean and wonderful and, and horns sound great on it. I do. I have also used it. On archtop guitar, when I want an old-fashioned chunk, chunk, chunk sound ah. out of chords, because uh, sometimes when he records archtop guitars, even if they have pickups in it, I'd ra- we'd quite often rather mic the top of the thing. Oh, uh, lovely! What kind of archtop do they use? Because I know there's uh, there's a brand that I can't. Remember. Uh, there was a chap here in Bath, Andy Davis, who's a, a great musician. Wrote he was part of the Corgis, toured with Tears for Fears, and he wrote some great songs. And it, Framus, that was it. It's a Framus, and that was the one of the most beautiful sounding archtop guitars I've ever heard. It was an acoustic, pretty much. I think you get a pickup on it, but uh, there's quite a 1920s or something. You know, really beautiful sounding thing. What does uh, what does Mister Mister Big use? Well, he's got everything. <laughs> some of the most unbelievable guitar. He's got, you know, a guitar collection that's almost second to none. Some of what he's got are vintage D'Angelico's, Dacistos. He's got um, uh, old Epiphone New Yorker. He's got um, a Gibson L5 that he got in the last couple of years that sounds unbelievably good. He's got an Epiphone, this big gold archtop fat body EF hole thing that he uses sometimes. And, the, you know, the Gibson and that one have, you know, pickup outputs on them, too. So I can take it both ways if I want or whatever. Uh-huh. But um, sometimes you don't want it to sound that close. You want it to sound more like, like I say, some guy chunking chords in an old big band or something, you know. And it, it's when you want, you want to hear the, the, the stuff reflecting off the arched top and out of those F-holes. Ah, interesting. Um, uh, uh uh, Sinners Music in the chat room asks, has anybody tried the Antares mic mod plugin? I don't think I have. Have you tried any mic modeling technology, Rich? I mean, I've not something, I'm guessed with, with mics that you have, you know, why bother? But I mean, in some instances, it might be the case. Do, have you tried any of that stuff? I tried it when it first came out just to see if I thought it worked well. I thought it worked okay, but conceptually, it seemed like such a bizarre thing to take your you know, Electro Voice RE15 and try to make it sound like a U48. 
Yeah, I can't really understand because, I mean, each microphone has different characteristics. So, I mean, it's almost like you need the sound before you've recorded it. it has to, You have to record it with no microphone <laughs> for that to work, sort of in my head. But then again, the idea of impulse responses at the front end of a transduction chain as well as the way – like, for example, in guitar technology – you have line six guitars where they're triggering the, – the guitar is not actually making the noise. You know what I yeah. mean? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, I wouldn't say synthesized. I'm looking, I don't know what the word I'm looking for Model, is. I but, think it's uh, modeled, yeah. It's a modeled guitar sound that you can you – know, you don't have to retune. You can get you know, open detunings and all this stuff without having to retune. And, um, so why shouldn't you be able to overlay – a mic model on top of something else to see what it does right? as an IR. Yeah. And so to that extent, the mic modeler from Antares, which is like a 10 or 15-year-old product, is a somewhat visionary concept in terms of what it seeks to do. I don't think they used actual mic models, but I don't even know what he did. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, as uh, um, Tribix says again in the chat room, it raises an interesting point, which is that uh, unless – you tell it what mic it was recorded with in the first place so it can make adjustments. It's sort of, do you see what I mean? So the I th- compensation. I think Mike Modeler does that. I think it says, what did you use and where, and where do you want it to go ah, or something? Okay. Like I think there, there may have been, and again, I'm working from memory a long time ago, but there may have been some way to address that. Huh. I'd ne- I've never, you know, because I don't work in the recorded world all that much. In fact, you know, at the tri- I had this uh, scenario, uh, I-, I think I might have said, where the, uh, I recorded three girls singing along with a BBC recording, you know, to try and overlay them on the top. And I was thinking, I'd get them down here, and I hadn't really thought about it at all. Like, oh, wait a minute, how am I going to record them? I don't want to do one by one, it won't work. So I just stuck a mic in front of them and said, well, when it's your turn, you just step forward. Old school. And it came out really good. And I was like, wow, that's great. But all I had was that, would, that was sensitive enough. So I couldn't really use the ribbon because they're not, you know, they haven't got any recording technique. I mean, why would they? They're nine years old. Um, so I just used the Behringer C1, which is something that's lying around here. It came with, came with a mixer, I think, or something. Uh, you know, it was fine. But that's about as far as it goes. I, d- I don't, I think when I'm in a studio, uh, when I have been in a studio and it's down to my, uh, my guidance as to what to use, I'm really useless. Live, I pretty know what, I know what to do. But mics have changed again. Live mics, you know, that, that's changed technology as well because they've got a lot more smaller and discreet and more robust. And the, that, that whole that kind of world has changed as well. Um, so I don't know where I, I know where I'd start, but I don't know if anybody would still have any of those microphones anymore for me to use them. Well, for me, as an engineer, quite often at moments like that, I, and this is always a surprise to them, I will ask the assistant, what would you do? Yeah. And unless it's, like, really objectionable to me, I'll try it. Because it's the only way I get to learn stuff anymore. I'm not around studios and around other people's work that much. And those guys are. Yeah, absolutely. So let them put, so let them put something up and let me hear what they've got. I know I can always go back and do what I would do. Yeah. But there's not there's not that much for me to learn there. No, that's a very interesting point, and that would be that I'd use the same. And uh, if you're maybe going in to do a live gig and you don't know the venue or any of the kit, you just showing up with the band, said you help, just say, well, you you know, you do what you do, and I'll see 
what I can do when it comes to the point because I don't know the room. You know, there's no point in in learning all that stuff. You know, I mean, you could do it instinctively, and some people prefer to have total control, but quite often I well, and there's a political fringe benefit too in yeah. that the assistant then feels much more engaged in the process. Absolutely, because he's being consulted as a peer for his advice about something that he's probably been waiting to you know voice an opinion on and wasn't able to for years and years or whatever. So. It helps that too, but that's not really why I do it. No, I but I think it, that's, that's a, 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 re- a really valid point because it's very easy, certainly from a live scenario, to come in all guns blazing as a, as a visiting engineer or, or a band or a team and sort of start saying, throwing it around. And, you know, it's like, yeah, sure, do what you know. And you can kind of go, well, I've got some things that might help you make this sound better in this venue. So maybe you should listen, you know. And, and if you could encourage people to use that knowledge, uh, then it makes everybody feel happier. But they've been carefully trained not to do that. And for good reasons, because a lot of guys don't want that. I suppose And so. I've had more than one of them tell me, you're the first guy who ever asked me that. Um, and I just remember when I was a young assistant, having engineers turn to me at times and go, what would you do? And I thought that was really cool of them. And I felt a lot more important to the process at that moment. And there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. And then, in terms of you're going to have to spend the next week or two or three or four with this guy. Yeah. And then uh, two sugars, please. Yeah. But uh, exactly. There, there is there is an element. I, I mean, I have. And I always tell them, I may not do what you say, but I want to hear it. Yeah. Let's listen to what you've got and let's see what it is. And sometimes I learn great things. Exactly. And sometimes yeah. I learn that I want to go back to what I did last time because it sounds better. That's interesting. I mean, again, I go back to this. I mean, I'm going back to this drum session I did at Real World a long time. Uh, well, it was, it's, you know, it's probably the last big session I worked on, to be honest, when I had to build the drums up. And we just went in and we used the engineer just showed and goes, right, okay, there's the kit. And he basically just mic'd up, put it all really fast. He got it going really fast, recorded everything. And we were recording within like an hour and a half of turning up. I mean, it was incredible. And it sounded absolutely fantastic. And I can't remember what he did, you know, but it's the usual stuff. But then there were some other interesting elements like, you know, what he used for room mics. And, you know, we used some Coles uh, ribbon mics for room stuff and a ball and biscuit, which is, a, I think, is a Coles mic as well, which is a really weird looking thing, which is like a kind of like this and this. It's like a a ball and a biscuit and uh it's got uh, i think it's a stereo mic so you use um oh, i forget which it is it, it's the bloom i think it's bloom line you use it as part of a bloom line pair or mm. yeah i think that's how it works but that sounded good as well and it all has you know it, and it's again they'll know how to make that kind of sound out of the room as well because you're not necessarily going to walking into a room you don't necessarily know what's going to happen when you crush the hell out of that room mic if that's the sound you want kind of what it's going to sound like it might sound terrible if you're going to put it in a specific position you can't spend your entire life moving mics around because there there is still a time constraint of course no but if you walk the space and listen to it uh in a musical way you know with a musical perspective in your mind you can usually make most of your decisions about that stuff pretty well Mm. you know which and and you know it's funny because i'm a lot less critical about my room mics because you can sort of make them into anything you want them to be. They're not being impacted that hard. Right. So quite often the, my room mics, mics end up being the best pair of condensers you've got left after I've done everything else <laughs> I need to do. Right. I'm serious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it's going to be a spaced pair all the way across the room. The chances you're going to use any significant percentage of the stuff is very, very small. And if it's any kind of a half-decent mic from, you know, four fourteens on up, it's going to do pretty well right out there. Yeah. But most of my sound is going to be coming from things that are a lot closer than that anyway. 
I always, but that, that's interesting. But I, I must admit, I, I've always been very uh, surprised at the amount of room there is in a sound when I've had the chance to look at multitracks and I listen to the drums, you know, certain recordings, and I'm going, God, I don't remember it being that roomy. But then when you listen to it and you, maybe you're trying to emulate it, you're piling it on and on, thinking, God, was there really that much on there? Because I mean, I think that it's a common misconception, isn't it, that close mic stuff. Most people are using this really close mic and and just kind of affecting it all in the the mix and the processing they put on it afterwards. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of space certainly in drums. That well, the way I was taught, <clears throat> excuse me, the way I was taught is the first thing I'm going to do over a drum kit is my overheads, and I'm going to make that drum kit sound as musical as I can in the overheads first. Right. And then I will leave them open. I mean, I'll turn them on and off, but I will also check against them being open, each drum as I'm doing it, to make sure that it's coherent with that decision that I made about how it's going to be overhead. And I think the best thing I can say about any of this and that people tend to overlook maybe is that you're not really usually recording the thing. You're usually recording the air around the thing. Hmm. And that's what makes it sound natural to you because your ear isn't on it. Your ear is never that close to a cymbal. No, thank, for example. thank God. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But, but I'm just saying you've got mics there, but nothing, that, that's not realism. That's surrealism. That's, the close mics are the way you make it larger than life. But the way you make it lifelike is to respect the fact that in your life what you hear is the air around things. Hmm. That's a really good now. I never, I've not really come across the kind of doing starting with the overheads, because I must admit, I, whenever I was construct, and I've used overheads live, but in a recorded scenario, I've always been uncomfortable knowing where they should be and how much of the sound should be there. Because I mean, certainly live in the in the my years of experience of doing, it, I haven't done it for a long time. It's all about separation and being able to do that. Um, you know. And, and, and to cut, you know, you're often gating and what have you, just so that you've got this tight control because it's not so much the rest of the drum kit going down, it's the bass player or the guitarist or the, you know, whatever. It's all the other stuff that, that kind of issues. And also, if you're doing monitors from front of house, which in the sort of venues I was doing, I was doing that as well. I had to clean up the signal, otherwise you've got the drum kit overheads piling out of the monitor, you know. So it, I, I've never been comfortable with that. I like that idea. It sounds like a really good... Now, what would you generally use for your overheads out of interest? With that in mind? Lately... Lately, I've been liking um, a single stereo condenser microphone, maybe three or four feet above the drummer's head, pointed down towards the kit that is essentially listening to what he's listening to. Right. Because then when he plays the dynamics based on what he's hearing, you're going to capture that because your mic is hearing more or less what he's hearing just a little further away. Ah, okay. That's interesting. And um, so you use a stereo mic because then then the point source is much closer together, right? Yeah, if I have to use an uh, 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 XY or even MS, although I don't think I've ever done MS over a drum kit, but uh, if I got to use XY, I can use a pair of 87s or whatever and make it work. But if I can get a C24 up there or something like that, even there's even a Shure condenser, stereo condenser that works pretty well in this role. And I think Audio-Technica has one. But it, basically, if I can get something with real good stereo coherence to represent over the drummer's head what he's hearing, that's a great conceptual place to start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. I, I think um, I use, I had a, a Sony ECM-979 stereo mic. It's called Top of the Range stereo mic, which I bought very many years ago. It's quite a big, 
big thing. It's it's for ENG and gathering, and you you can vary the width, so you can kind of crank the phase out a little bit, which probably screws with the whole phase consistency. But that sounded great over a drum kit with just a bass drum mic. It sounded it had a real kind of vibe to it, very much so. So mm-hmm. uh, I've still got that yep. actually. I like to try that. I, I, another thing I saw recently, and I, we may have discussed this, or, or I can't remember if we discussed it or I just watched it and thought about putting it in the show. But there was a. There's a on the road mics site. There's a, a really big production video of uh, I forget the name of the producer. He goes into a studio in Nashville and mics everything pretty much with the Rode C1. It, so a whole drum kit and and uh, pianos and what have you. And it's just a, it's actually quite an interesting just masterclass in a how to mic stuff like that, but b how you know what what that can sound like and that was and you can get the download the sessions at full you know 96k if you want to listen to the individual mics how they work it's an interesting idea i used a lot of these same principles last year when i had to record acoustic piano at avatar for a guy named john batiste who is a brilliant brilliant musician and um we had an amazing nine foot steinway in there and in addition to the usual pair you've got somewhere over the hammers laying out the stereo field there. And the occasional, some guys put this halfway down the length of the bass strings to catch the first harmonic of the bass, inst- uh, the bass of the instrument so you can add warmth without confusing your, uh, your image. I ended up having seven microphones on this piano, yeah. including a, a stereo pair, just like I just described to you, over the pianist's head looking down at the piano behind him matched for coherence left and right with the closer mics so that the room sound in some level mimicked what he was hearing. Because again, I think if you can get as much of the musician's intent, if you have good musicians and they make a great sound, your job as an engineer is basically not to screw it up and to capture as much of what he's hearing as possible because he's going to give you great stuff. You don't have to make it. Ah, that's, yeah, that, I think that's a really good uh, uh, a good way of looking at it. Um, a couple of people are saying in the chat room, uh, the overheads is uh, Matt M and uh, Native VS, Glenn John's technique, apparently, uh, which is using the overheads and starting with that and going straight up. I'm not sure I'm aware. Well, it's it's been done for years, and the guy who taught me learned it from Martin Birch, who's an Englishman who recorded like Deep Purple and a bunch of other bands. And they had different placements than what I'm using. I mean, I've sort of developed my own way about it. But conceptually, the idea that your overheads are going to be open all the time, and that's really where your drum kit is made. I was really gratified to see Bob Clearmountain doing that when I watched him do basics. Ah. Because that's, and I've seen Ed Cherney, and he does the same thing. And these are my buddies, you know, these are guys who really, you know, come out of the same sort of ethos that my history comes from in the same sort of time frame and uh it just makes sense to be as much of a musician as you can while you're engineering right gotcha and that's sort of what i do excellent all right for anybody who's still listening here's one more tip (laughs) i used to teach this to the guys uh when i used to teach at college and it has to do with tom tom miking in tom-tom miking, what you're dealing with is the ratio between the stick hit and the shell, which I call the whack and the woo. Ah. And I know it's only whack and woo, but I like it. And uh, <laughs> if you get that ratio right with the angle of the microphone and the part of the drum you're miking, 
you get this wonderful, clear attack and this gorgeous woo behind it. And they're connected in a coherent way by those overheads that I described to you before. But sometimes you hear tom-toms where it sounds like the whack and the woo are disconnected. Right. And uh, That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. For, for, for live... You know, you have a different set of principles. You know, you 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 can't put the mic anywhere you want it because you know the guy might hit it <laughs> in the heat of the moment, or you know it might you might not get the separation you need, which is a, a, a you know is a, is a separate issue to the recording because in the recording it might be more of a blend rather than an individual. You know, for that because in the chorus of the third song, there's this bit where you've just got to send that tom into a whole world of ambience or whatever, and you don't really want the hi hat going down it or whatever. Whack and woo. I like that. The whack to woo ratio. <laughs> that's what you need right there on a tom-tom. Excellent. Which that's absolutely fascinating. That's, that's been a great discussion. Cool. I, 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 there was, a, there was a, both of us thinking, oh, there's only going to be two. How are we going to get through this entire session? Almost it's, like we're back in the pub. It's now, right? yeah, it's now, the it's, now it's like 20 past after five. We've done you know, an hour and 20 minutes, and it's all gone very well. So I want to say thanks to Rich. That's great. I don't think we, we, we kind of... We don't need to add any more topics. I think we can leave okay. that for now. Uh, what I'm going to do is, obviously, we'll say thank you very much to Rich. But before I do, I don't think I was clear enough. The isotope contest, um, what I'm looking for is uh, something weird or interesting that you've sampled. So that's the tie-in with Iris. And uh, oh, if I put that up there, then you know, you, if, you have, if you haven't done it yet, you could also just go and get a copy of Iris, sample something, and then tell us what it was. Leave it in the comments below, uh, either in the YouTube comments if you're watching this via YouTube, or in the show comments if you're watching it on Sonic State or listening to it. Come, come to the site and just uh, check out. This will be show episode 316. Um, so once again, Rich, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, really enjoyed that. That's great. And we got a chance to to kind of really dig deep on some of your insight there. And I know a lot of people in the chat room have been very appreciative of that. So thank you very much for sharing. Well, thank you. I really, I, I love to talk about this. <laughs> Excellent. That's why we're here, right? Anyway, so that was Sonic Talk number uh, 316. There it is. Uh, and that is the end of the show. So thanks very much for watching, and thank you very much, Rich. We'll see you soon. Take care.